ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. What a past week with the launch of the first U.S.-listed Bitcoin futures ETFs. I'll be honest, I'm uh, exhausted after tracking all of this, but I think everyone knows I've also had a ton of fun here. I just think it's such an interesting topic, this intersection of crypto and ETFs. So if you'll indulge me, I have two more excellent guests this week to continue covering this story. Uh, it is going to be the ETF story of the year, without question. So I'm going to stay on top of this. I'll be joined momentarily by Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. I want to get his hot take on everything that's occurred over the past week and also just talk more broadly about the significance of these ETFs for financial advisors and investors, sort of the bigger picture meaning. And then later, I'll be joined by Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management, who actually has two live Bitcoin ETF filings with the SEC. One is a futures-based ETF, the other is a spot product, and I'll venture to say there's probably not a single person walking the entire face of the earth who can bridge these two topics of ETFs and crypto better than Matt. He's an expert in both, so I'll get his take on everything we've seen over the past week. And then I'm very curious to hear where he thinks the SEC stands on a physical Bitcoin ETF, We'll also discuss what the competitive landscape will look like with these futures-based ETFs. And then I have a few good questions from Twitter, which we'll get into as well. And then also on the podcast this week is Andrew Channon, CEO of Procure AM. We'll take a bit of a breather from Bitcoin ETFs and dive into two ETFs he's involved with. The Procure Space ETF, which has one of the best ticker symbols around, UFO. And then the LGBTQ plus ESG 100 ETF, which launched back in May. Uh, interesting ETF. We'll discuss that and also talk about the Procure Asset Launchpad, which helps third parties bring their ETF ideas to market. So pack show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, great having you back on the uh, podcast. What a wild week. Hey, Nate, how you holding up? <laughs> I'm doing well. If you can't tell, I'm just having an absolute blast with uh, with all of us. 
It, it's been great. It, I, I know you're a classic rock fan. It's kind of like hearing disco for the first time. Not really sure what it is. Feels a little different, but you kind of like it, right? <laughs> well, I'm curious. You know, look, you've been involved with ETFs for a long time. Have you ever seen anything like we've witnessed this past week with these Bitcoin ETFs coming to market? I mean, does it compare to anything you've seen? Well, uh, it was funny. Last week I was talking to Jim Ross, who launched the first gold ETF, GLD. And, and we've been really good friends. And he, we reminisced a little bit about what it was like to get that to a billion dollars, which, as you remember, happened pretty quickly. But when that got to $5 billion, they were pinching themselves. Um, last summer, it hit $184 billion. The folks at State Street World Gold Council never imagined in a million years that it would get that much attention. But it's an asset class. And it grew and it provided great um, ability to invest in gold without owning bars or coins for a low cost. It did exactly what it's supposed to do. And when you line up what's going on right now, not to say we're going to get to $184 billion, but there's a huge amount of upside. Well, it's interesting that you bring up GLD because that actually previously held the record for the fastest ETF to $1 billion until last week with a ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF. That thing hit over a billion dollars in two days. It took GLD three days to get there. Now, of course, GLD was back in 2004, so people can toss out inflation and all that, but an impressive feat nonetheless. I'm curious, were you surprised at the investor interest in these futures-based Bitcoin ETFs and all of the media attention around these. Were you expecting that? Uh, not not expecting it, but hopeful, let's just say. Uh, again, Nate, you and I are advisors. Um, we know that our clients are asking about Bitcoin and, and we're educating them. But up until now, we really haven't had something that's been really comfortable to be able to offer on platform. And now, um, through this future-based offering, we do. It's SEC approved. It's somewhat validated, not recommended by the SEC, but validated. Uh, the underlying is government regulated, and it's got a 40-act wrapper on it. So for advisors, at this point in time, we don't have an excuse. We have something uh, that is available. We just have to determine and do our due diligence is it right for our clients? How do we address it with our clients? What type of allocation model do we put together? Do we have an, a dollar cost averaging uh, option for clients? Because if we don't at this point in time and clients have been asking for it, there's a good potential that they're going to do something on their own. And that's not always the best for the client. Emotions come in, into play when these volatile markets kick in. But also, you want to do the best you can for your clients, and this gives us an option to step up our game. Yeah, I'm glad you started heading down that path, because in terms of the significance of these ETFs, I know a lot has been made about the issues with these being futures-based and having to roll contracts and the negative rule yield, and we can certainly talk about that. And I think it's good that there has been a focus on those potential issues. I, I've said this has been a good educational uh, effort <laughs> that has come to market to help educate people on how futures-based products uh, can be both good and bad for investors. So I, I'm glad those are getting attention. But you recently wrote a piece with five key takeaways for advisors, I would say, from more of a positive standpoint. And I'd love to have you talk about these. So let, let me go through the five points. You said, number one, advisors can now satisfy client demand. So clients don't have to go rogue trying to get Bitcoin exposure on their own and where advisors can't help manage that exposure, which I think is important in a high vol asset class like Bitcoin. I think rebalancing is very important. I think position sizing is very important. So obviously that can help solve that problem. Number two, as you had alluded to previously, the SEC has validated the concept. So that helps advisors maintain credibility. This isn't some unregulated token or whatever that advisors are pitching to clients. And obviously that helps with compliance as well. Um, number three, you said an ETF offers highly correlated on-platform exposure, which I'm assuming you mean just high correlation to the price of Bitcoin, and it can be accessed through normal channels, right? So advisors and clients can access this through Charles Schwab or Fidelity or wherever they hold their, their normal brokerage or IRAs. And then number four, advisors have more tools in the alts toolbox 
And you specifically mentioned the debate around the death of the 60-40 portfolio, and you know, especially that 40, whether or not that's something people want to have allocation to moving forward. You talked about concerns over inflation and those sorts of things. And then number five, which I thought was a really interesting point, was Bitcoin can attract the next generation of clients. And you, you, you made this point that advisors can lead the way on crypto education and introducing clients to, to the asset class. And then, of course, implementation via the ETF. I'd love to have you just talk more about any or, or all of those. Uh, just what you think having futures-based Bitcoin ETFs mean for advisors and then ultimately their clients. Yeah, I think a general statement, Nate, and thanks for going through that, is if you look at demand of crypto um, up until this point, uh, now, again, I'm talking in general, we've got a, longer, a lot of younger advisors with smaller amounts of money that might have been buying it on Robinhood. There's a lot of excitement around it. There are a lot of younger folks that have been on early who've made a lot of money. A lot of millionaires have been made out of this, which has been great. At the same time, we're seeing adoption at the institutional level. Uh, you see big pension plans that are now dipping their toe in the water, which has been fantastic. Um, starting to see advisor adoption, but the upside is huge. You know, uh, Eric Balchunas wrote that uh, he feels that the amount of money that's managed by financial advisors in the U.S. is something like $25 trillion. Can you imagine if there is an overall 1% allocation what that would mean and, and the upside potential. So I, I think all in all, it, it, back to the points earlier, this is something that we can't as advisors ignore anymore. Uh, our, our clients are ahead of the curve. They're already asking about it. Their kids are asking about it. And we have to be responsible in kind of bringing it all together. The question is, is this tool, the futures-based ETF, the right tool at this point in time Will we see a physically, and I've got my air quotes on, the, the physically backed version coming, where a lot of people feel that that will be the case, um, that's up for debate. Will we, can see, uh, will we see uh, prices uh, regarding expenses start to decline uh, with VanX offering coming at 65 basis points versus 95 basis points for the two that have launched? That's a good sign. Things are heading in the right direction. And ultimately, the efficiency and the trading and the volume, can the futures market and can the crypto market keep up? The, these are all the questions that we're asking, but at the same time, we're approaching new highs again, and as many are anticipating uh, greater demand going forward, man, you know, if, if Bitcoin hits $100,000 and we've been sitting on our hands, shame on us, right? Well, and you bring up a lot of good points here. I want to touch on a couple in terms of whether or not this is the right tool. Obviously, right now for a lot of advisors, this is now the only tool they have if they want to own Bitcoin on behalf of their clients through their traditional financial services plumbing. Clearly, the SEC uh, isn't comfortable with a physical Bitcoin ETF at this point. And the way that I view this is, yes, futures-based products have some challenges. And if you look at the futures curve right now for Bitcoin, it's in contango. That means the out-month contracts are at a higher price than the near-month contracts. And as the ETF rolls those over every month, it's a, it's a headwind. And there is a negative performance drag there. That said, to your point, if you think the price of Bitcoin is going to increase over time and you don't have another way to get exposure and you want to have this asset class in a portfolio, the futures-based ETFs do offer an option here. And, you know, I sent out a, uh, a tweet last night. We always talk about, it's, it's kind of cliche, but we always talk about how ETFs have democratized access to asset classes and investment strategies. And this is exactly what's happening here. And it's funny that what I tweeted out was a, a chart that showed the weekly inflows into all crypto asset funds. So this includes these, these private trusts that are trading, all, all the different crypto asset funds that are out there. And, and the chart, all the way to the right from last week, there's a huge hockey stick on it with the launch of these ETFs. What that shows me is that there, there's been an access problem, that there's pent-up demand. Advisors and investors want access to Bitcoin through their traditional, again, financial services plumbing, and, and this is solving a problem. So... What I'm getting at, is this the, the perfect tool? No. Um, does it open up access to an asset class that has been challenging for some investors to get their hands on? Yes. And 
if if you want exposure to to Bitcoin in a portfolio, again, this is not perfect, but it gives you an option. I, I just think that's important. It is. And, you know, one other point, which I know as being a big ETF fan, Nate, you're paying close attention to is it ProShares was first out of the gates and there's always been in the ETF market a first mover advantage. However, with the challenges of position limits and futures, they're coming up against a wall. Uh, they're applying to the CME for uh, a, a, a condition where you can actually extend the amount of futures that you can purchase. Jury's still out whether that's going to happen, but what it does do is it gives those new players that are coming behind the ability to catch up. And I don't think we're talking enough about that because, look, um, pretty quickly, if we've got three uh, futures-based ETFs out there, we could get to the point in a matter of weeks where all three have hit their limit as far as 5,000 co uh, contracts. And then what happens if the CME doesn't budge on that? So these are things that we need to consider as well. Um, obviously, the CME is thrilled with the, the Bitcoin marketplace. It's been a huge boost for their business. Everyone's making a lot of money. But back to your point, right now, it appears to be the best game in town. Even though you're going out to future months, the cost of that and the, the lack of correlation to the underlying Bitcoin still, for ease of use, is probably worth the pain. You started uh, heading down the path of the competitive landscape here, and I, I want to set the table a little bit, and then I have a few thoughts on, on how this might play out. So right now, we, we obviously have the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker BITO. That was first to market last Tuesday. Last Friday, the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF was second to market, ticker BTF, uh, which, by the way, they were so close to an all-time ticker symbol in BTFD. Uh, SEC didn't like. I know you already you already had your T-shirts printed, didn't you? <laughs> Hats and everything, um, and then any day now. I thought perhaps today, and maybe that will still be the case. The Vanek Bitcoin Strategy ETF ticker XBTF is supposed to launch, and as you mentioned, what's noteworthy about that ETF is that it's undercutting the other two on price. So Vanek is going to launch at 65 basis points. BITO and BTF are at 95 basis points. And then I'll also note that there are like five or six other futures-based ETF filings in the hopper with the SEC. That's after uh, Invesco dropped out of the race last week, uh, which, which I thought that was interesting. That's a whole other story. Um, but as I take a step back here, just from a competitive standpoint, I feel like there are three or four categories where issuers will compete. And of course, you have the first mover and pro shares, which historically, that's been the best place to be, right? You typically have higher assets, more liquidity, more awareness. And that certainly looks like <laughs> that, that's the case so far. And then obviously, issuers can compete on price, which is what Van Eck is doing coming in at 65 basis points. I think a third really interesting element here is what I call crypto street cred. And the way that I'll explain this is, I feel like investors might prefer owning ETFs from firms that are branded around crypto or have some sort of crypto notoriety. And I think advisors might like the optics of that on client statements. So in my mind, in terms of who's on the market right now, someone like Valkyrie would fall into that category. And then lastly, you talked about position limits and all of these issuers are going to have to manage just the futures exposure and the role. Clearly, performance is going to play a, a part here, just how well these ETFs manage rolling those futures and, and all of that. So ProShares has the first mover lockdown. I think the other categories are up for grabs. We'll, we'll see who else enters the space. But to me, I, I think the crypto street cred is an interesting one to watch. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I think it's absolutely right. Uh, the folks at Valkyrie, they do have street cred, but they also have ETF cred. A lot of them uh, came up through either Ridex or Guggenheim and created some really innovative ETFs at the time. So uh, they've got a great team and they are competitors. Uh, it's not a name that the ETF industry knows, but they're gonna get to know them really well. Um, you know, an another point that I might add, Nate, is there really is gonna be a demand for diversification in the space. So a couple things, if futures-based Bitcoin ETFs uh, are a thing, when are we going to th see Ethereum? And we've already got Ethereum futures, and it would be nice to be able to have some choice. I mean, I, I own both Bitcoin and Ethereum, 
and uh, they both have uh, great use cases, but they're quite different. And it would be interesting to see that. On top of that, from a diversification standpoint, you got the man, Matt Hogan, coming on next. Then he's got some indexes with some of the top 10 cryptocurrencies and offering diversification in an, a, a crypto index, I think goes along to all the good things that ETFs bring. And I think having something like that on the marketplace would be huge. I don't know about you, and I tend to be a crypto fan, but some of these up and coming cryptocurrencies, I just can't keep up with them. But having that type of index available, and if that was available in ETF form, it'd be fantastic. Yeah, I've said longer term, my expectation is that we will have crypto index ETFs and even actively managed crypto ETFs. Because what I what I think is going to happen is everybody's going to be able to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum directly at Charles Schwab or Fidelity or wherever. And that's going to minimize the use case for single crypto ETFs. However, that's only going to make the index-based or actively managed crypto ETFs, I think, much more attractive. And I think how ultimately people will want to get exposure to them. A couple quick points, just just a, a minute or two left here. You mentioned the Ethereum uh, ETF. Look, CME has Ethereum futures trading. And so, again, regulated venue. If you have Ethereum futures in a 40-act product, I don't see why those wouldn't be approved. What's the difference between that and in Bitcoin futures ETFs. I'm going to actually ask Matt about that a little bit later. And then I'm just curious, Tom, from your standpoint, I, I know we're all just taking a shot in the dark here, but do you have any strong opinion on what the SEC might do regarding a, uh, a physical Bitcoin ETF? I'll tell you from my standpoint, I am growing more pessimistic by the day. Uh, th there were some uh, comments from Gary Gensler yesterday that I saw that just reinforced that. But do you think there's any chance we'll see a physical Bitcoin ETF like in the next year or so? Yeah, so, so first on, on the first question regarding the theorem, yeah, they have uh, Ethereum futures, um, but as you know, futures can be funky. Um, I asked Steve McClurg over at Valkyrie about that, and he said they're keeping an eye on it, but it's, it's not as well uh, used and accepted as the Bitcoin futures are. But who knows? You know, we may see more adoption, and, and if we get uh, greater participation, uh, it, it's one of those things that I think will grow out of this firestorm that we've got going on right now. So fingers crossed, it would be great to have that. As far as physically backed, boy, you know, Gensler put his neck out on the line here, and we know that uh, with this futures-based offering. And this is something that, um, that Matt is going to be able to spend more time on. He spent a lot of time with the SEC. I have to say we should be very, very proud of not just the SEC, but folks like Matt in our industry who've come to the table in a very rational way over the past few years to really do the research and kick the tires so we could have some type of offering like this. So there's a big, big trust that's been built between the SEC and issuers, and I think more opportunities are going to come down the road. At, at one point in time, I think we will have a physically backed uh, Bitcoin ETF, but it may take some time. And in the meantime, the question is, with all the demand that we have out there, do we have enough supply in these futures ETFs? Um, that's going to be the big question. I think that's something you and I are going to spend a lot of time watching. Well, an interesting checkpoint on the physical Bitcoin ETF will be, I believe, November 14th, where VanEck, uh, they have a, a physical Bitcoin ETF filing that the SEC owes them a decision on one way or another. And it's possible they just disapprove it and don't say anything. But it, it will be interesting if they actually offer some commentary around a disapproval and just give the market more insight into what their current thinking is. Again, I, I don't expect approval by any stretch of the imagination, but it would be interesting if they offered just some additional insight into their thinking at this point. We'll see. But, Tom, yeah. fun conversation hey. as always. Uh, really appreciate hey, the time. Nate, yeah, go ahead. Here. Um, I think we can have a side bet. Right. I mean, uh, I will say dinner by the end of 22, we're going to have a physically backed ETF. Are you up for that? And you're going to take the no side? I'll take that only because you're catching me at a time when I'm very pessimistic after hearing Gensler's comment. So initially I thought, you know, maybe... 
third quarter, 22, we would see a physical Bitcoin ETF approved. But I, I have just, again, grow more bearish by the day. So you're catching me at a weak time, but I will take the bet. Good. Well, we'll keep checking in. Thanks for having me, Nate. I appreciate it. That was Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. My next guest is Andrew Channon, CEO of ProcureAM, who currently offers two ETFs, about $125 million in assets. That includes the Procure Space ETF, ticker UFO, one of the best tickers out there. And then the LGBTQ plus ESG 100 ETF, ticker LGBT, that launched back in May. And Andrew is now on the line with me from New York. Andrew, always great connecting. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Okay, so look, I know you follow the ETF space as closely as anyone. I have to ask you about Bitcoin ETFs before you offer a nice palate cleanser for the show and we talk about something else. What, what are your thoughts on this past week? We now have two futures-based Bitcoin ETFs. Looks like a third on the way any, any day here. What's been your uh, impression so far? Well, you know, certainly I can't give any advice, um, but... You know, I'm, I'm excited to see innovation reaching the U.S. markets. And, you know, for the beginning of since the beginning of the ETF industry, the U.S. has been a leader on you know, almost every front when it comes to coming up with new ideas, themes, asset classes and whatnot for ETFs. And this was an area where, you know, there wasn't any shortage of desire to bring one of these products to market. It was just a shortage of um, willingness by by the commission to allow these products to see the light of day. Um, you know, from my own history, I've always been someone that you know looks more towards kind of physically backed types of products as opposed to something that may be you know futures backed um, or otherwise. But you know, this seems like a, a step in the right direction for for the commission for U.S. markets. It's an asset class that many people have been looking to get exposure to. Um, certainly in an exchange-traded type of vehicle, and you, know, you can see it by, by the demand that we've already witnessed um, in these, these early days for these two new products and the many more down the pipeline. But, you know, I think this is, you know, kind of step one in what, you know, will hopefully be, um, you know, an even more mature uh, crypto ETF marketplace in the U.S. and in the days to come. We're going to talk about this later, but you offer a platform to help other people bring their ETF ideas to market. I'm just curious, did you have any Bitcoin ETF inquiries over the past year or so, or is that just something you stayed away from altogether? No, we, we definitely didn't shy away from the conversations. Um, you know, at, at the moment, there isn't anything that we're, we're working on necessarily in the crypto space. It's one that we're, we're absolutely interested in. Um, but, you know, one of the, the beauties of having a platform is that we don't need to be the expert in every category. And um, you know, being able to work with third parties that have expertise and background in, in various types of asset classes or themes or whatnot, um, you know, positions us in a, in a really interesting way where we can work with other kind of thought leaders and, and innovators in the space while providing them a platform to help get their products to market. So certainly something that we would uh, you know, welcome conversations, but something that we haven't um, made any big pushes on just at the moment. I was visiting earlier with ETF Trends' Tom Lydon just on how competition may play out in the space. And actually, uh, Matt Hogan from Bitwise will join me here in a bit, and, and I'll certainly ask him about this as well. But you know firsthand how tough it is to compete in the ETF space. W what do you think happens here? I mean, we now have two futures-based Bitcoin ETFs. 
another one's launching any day. There are another five or six on the hopper with the SEC. Do you have any thoughts on how this might play out from a competitive standpoint? Yeah, well, you know, one of the first ways that, you know, many companies try to compete when not, you know, bringing out second, third, fourth, and so on to market products is on fee. And ultimately, that's something that can help benefit the, the end user if there's a you know, fee compression. And with there being so many potential crypto products on the market, this is something where companies need to differentiate. You know, certainly, we saw it back with uh, you know, the gold ETFs, and they were competing on, you know, I believe there was like hundreds of basis points at, at times on fee. And you know, that's something that has helped drive prices down, which you know, for investors, if they're paying less, um, you know, in many cases, they'll, they'll be happy to be paying less. Um, but, you know, the other, again, like you said, you know, futures versus physical, you know, there's a GBTC, which is a, a fund that's already available and has been um, available to many investors in the U.S., which has, um, you know, crypto in it. It's a different structure than an ETF. Um, but, you know, we've seen interest in, you know, various types of ways that these products are structured. We've seen issues with futures products historically, like within USO, um, you know, and with, with the various effects that you have when trying to roll futures, um, you know, there could be high costs that are associated with it or slippage in the ability to track, you know, the actual price of, of whatever that asset is that you're hoping to, to track as closely as possible. So you know, to the extent that someone's able to provide, you know, pure clean exposure to a specific cryptocurrency and do it at a low fee, um, you know, that could certainly put them in, uh, in a good position to compete. But as we have more and more of these filings getting approved and coming to market, it's something that you know allows for investors to to have options and variety. Um, but they must make the the decision that's best for them to get the exposure that they're trying to attain. Okay, so on this note of competition, this is actually a good jumping off point to talk about Procure AM. Um, and, and actually, let's start with UFO, the Procure Space ETF, because since the last time you and I spoke you actually do now have some competition in this space. Of course, never fails in the ETF Terradome, right? That's uh, par for the course. But I'd love to have you just talk about being the first mover in a category and having another issuer come in. And then I'd love for you to just highlight UFO itself. Yeah, so, you know, I think this, th- there's always kind of this balance of, uh, you know, racing to be first to market and making sure that you actually build out and, and line up the right service providers, the right index for your product, and, and all the various pieces that go into it. So for us, this was something that we had been working on for a while before UFO actually finally launched. And one of the, the hard parts was, okay, we need an index that our fund will track. And finding the right team for, for us meant uh, you know looking around and seeing what was out there. And we were really fortunate enough to partner with S-Network who had been working with the former director of research for the Space Foundation, an individual that actually helped them build out for their annual space report the definition of of space, the space economy, the space industries that are involved, the companies that are generating revenues, how much, how this has changed over time, the government players, space policy, all various parts of this report um, was something that didn't, um, you know, they weren't really calculating. What is the space economy? Was this big unknown? And how do you calculate it? Was something that wasn't really being done effectively. And so by being able to partner and license the S Network Space Index was something that we were extremely excited by because not only had they taken the time to, to go through and understand the space industry, but they had brought on um, an expert in the space, uh, you know, background in astrophysics and space policy, having worked at the Space Foundation, currently a space consultant um, to, to government municipality types as well as uh, corporations. And for us, we thought that this was uh, a really huge win. And, you know, this kind of balance between being first to market um, and, and making sure that you're comfortable that the index that you're working with and licensing actually looks at the industry, understands the industry, and is pulling companies that are actually heavily engaged in the space industry was something that was very important for us. So you know, competition was something that we certainly expected, um, but you know, we wanted to make sure that if we, were, if we were going to be in the marketplace, we wanted to have an index that, that we could stand behind. And that's something that we're really proud of with UFO. And if you look at how this, this index actually picks, it looks at publicly traded companies from around the globe that trades on major stock exchanges. And there's an 80% rule, meaning that at the time of rebalance, at least 80% of the index must be focused on companies that are deriving a majority of their revenues from space. 
And to me, that was extremely important because if you tell investors you're you're offering this space fund, um, you know, to them, it's probably important that you're actually investing in companies heavily engaged in the space industry. And that is something that we're, we're very proud that this index has this feature in it where it's actually looking for revenues derived from space so that you're not just having a, a you know, something that's a gimmick product where you put space in the name or you tell people that space, but at the end of the day, you're really getting – you know, the majority of your price movements from companies that aren't getting a majority of the revenues from that actual theme. Well, I know you won't talk about performance, so I'll just note that since that competing ETF launched, uh, UFO is actually beating it by about eight percentage points. So pretty good. And that's only over a period of about, what, seven months or so. Um, Andrew, the, the other ETF you're involved with is one that launched back in May the LGBTQ plus ESG 100 ETF, ticker LGBT. This is the first ever ETF incorporating LGBTQ community survey data. I'd love to have you give us some background on the motivation behind launching this ETF and then certainly tell us what it holds. So again, to that idea of having a platform where you can help third parties bring their concepts to market and working with groups that have an expertise or background or thought leadership in a specific area this was a theme and a concept that came to us from a third party, LGBTQ Loyalty Holdings, and they wanted to create um, an LGBTQ-focused product. And for us, you know, we had seen attempts at doing something like this before, and these attempts you know, started and pretty much ended with just taking reports that HR companies and from companies would actually report. And when you do that, you miss you know, a lot of things. Because you know there could be some bias in how an HR department is actually conducting their their answers for various reports, but for us, you know, there's something much bigger about the LGBTQ plus community. This community represents roughly a trillion dollar economy in the United States alone. It you know represents different age groups, genders, uh, ethnicities, backgrounds, and there are people from all over the country and world. And the LGBTQ plus community has been known to be one of the most loyal spenders and purchasers of goods and services from companies that they believe are aligned with their community. And so when you look at it and you say, okay, well, there's this trillion dollars that, you know, has historically been very loyal with how they spend their money. To us, it seemed like, you know, maybe it's possible that there could be some type of alpha component to finding these companies that the LGBTQ plus community believes that is supportive and aligned with their community because if they're loyal, maybe that's where some of that money will be going towards. And the companies that aren't supportive, you know, maybe that money's not going to go towards there. So that, that was really kind of the start and the premise for the, this fund. So what happens is you start off with the universe of S&P 500. There's numerous ESG screens that then go and filter out some of the lower scoring ESG companies. And then with the remaining several hundred companies, surveys are sent out to over 150,000 LGBTQ plus households from across the country. And based on the surveys, responses, and feedback that we get, the top 100 companies are then put into this index. And so what you have is 100 of the you know, larger companies in the U.S. that have already screened highly for ESG that the LGBTQ plus community actually has told us these are the companies that they believe are most supportive and aligned with their community. So for us, this was something that was really interesting. Not only does it give us a really interesting index that changes over time as companies do better or worse for this community, but we built this, this fund for the community as well as their allies and others that, that want to um, you know, be able to invest in these companies that are supportive of this community. But at the same time, it's telling us which companies aren't as supportive, which ones are the most supportive. And on top of that, the community is actually involved in, in telling us what those companies are. So you know, there's companies out there that spend you know, millions upon millions of dollars a year telling the community that they're great for the community. But just because you slap your logo on a rainbow flag and go to a pride parade, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually doing great things for the community. So this actually finds out which companies are doing things, too, that are actually resonating with the community that they feel loyal behind. So we think that it takes the extra steps to actually engage this community that we're building this fund on behalf of. You mentioned the partnership with LGBTQ Loyalty Holdings. I was checking yesterday, the 
board members of this organization are impressive. You have former U.S. Congressman Barney Frank, MLB Vice President Billy Bean, Tennis Hall of Famer Martina Navratilova, uh, Bobby Blaine, who was a former world-ranked uh, tennis pro, uh, Bobby Blair, Orlando Reese, who was a former CEO of Pride Media. It's a, an impressive group of people. You, you talked a little bit just about the investment thesis here, and I completely get the uh, positive change aspect of an ETF like this. But is there a case performance-wise that this methodology can improve returns? Can you talk about that at all? You know, I, I can't talk about performance or, or future expectations, but certainly, um, you know, we, we'd hope that, um, you know, it's something that the, the you know, the index company ta- always talks about, um, you know, doing well by doing good and, and, and various mantras such as that, um, you know, Certainly, the S and P 500 is uh, is the benchmark that this fund looks at, mm-hmm. um, and and that's that's you know 100 of those companies are what you're getting in this fund. A few minutes left. So this ETF LGBT it was launched under what's called the Procure Asset Launchpad (PAL). Um, I, I alluded to that platform earlier. Do you want to talk about that platform and uh, explain the relationship between the, the ETF and Procure AM? Absolutely. So, at um, you know, from my, my former life, having started other um, ETF companies um, and having you know worked with various platforms in the U.S. and abroad, um, you know, I had I had many lessons that that I had learned. And you know, one of those things that we wanted to do in creating Procure AM was not just be able to launch our own ETFs, our own proprietary ideas, but we also wanted to be a, a company that individuals could partner with and get their products to market. And you know, hopefully, not have to worry about some of the same um, kind of tragic uh, uh, occurrences that had happened to me from um, some of my former companies. And by being able to create a platform and work with these individuals and and add you know various protections for them to to make them comfortable in in going forward with this type of relationship was something that was really important to us. And you know, my partner, Bob Tall, has helped build uh, platforms such as this, as well as proprietary ones in the past. Um, and this was something that we saw in the marketplace where there had been um, people using various white-label uh, platforms that hadn't been pleased or hadn't received what they had expected. And we wanted to create a, a new model for companies that want to work with us. So we have different pricing structures and different types of ways that we can partner, service providers that can be used, but we have an entire separate trust for uh, potential sponsors that are looking to bring products to market that are looking for a um, you know, a passive ETF trust where we have um, you know, a board that we're really pleased with and um, some some phenomenal service providers that we're that we're really excited to be able to work with to help our our partners get their their ideas off the ground. Just about a minute left here. You talked about your past experiences in the ETF space and. As I look at these third-party ETF platforms, including yours, white label providers, whatever you want to call them, that's clearly a fast-growing area of ETFs. It's amazing what I'm seeing right now. But for prospective ETF issuers that are listening, and we do have a lot of investment managers who listen to this podcast, just in a nutshell, what should they be thinking about when partnering with one of these platforms? Reputation should certainly be one of those first and foremost things that they want to look at. Do as much due diligence as you can on, on the various parties that you're working with. Talk to current and past uh, clients of those platforms and see you know, what their experience was like and if it was something that they would do again or if they're happy continuing to do it. Um, yeah, there are, like you said, there are you know, several parties out there that are now offering um, partnership white label um, types of relationships on their platform, but you know ultimately you want to make sure that you're doing business with with people that that you can trust. And at the end of the day, that's probably one of the most important things. But certainly also you know wanting to understand the various service providers that they use, how um, you know, the the fees and, and expenses that are associated with it, what additional expenses could be um, potentially on top of some of the, the just the basic. Um, uh, uh, fees associated with keeping an ETF afloat, um, you know, what kind of marketing and advertising that you might be doing in the future and what those types of things may cost. Um, but you know, certainly get to know the various clients that have, you know, currently are or have been on the platform and you know, get a feeling for them because you know, there's you know, many times where we get calls from, you know, from parties that 
your various stages of your pre-launch, launch, and whatnot on various platforms that are you know, saying, hey, I'd like, to, I'd like to potentially move platforms. You know, they want to get information and questions and find out if that's something that you might be able to do. So you know, all those things are you know, pretty important. And you know, once you get involved, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough relationship to, to alter. So make sure that everything is set and comfortable from day one and that you're, that you're happy and confident with the group that you're working with. Well, Andrew, we'll have to leave it there. Again, always enjoy connecting. Really appreciate your time this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Have a great day. That was Andrew Channon, CEO of Procure AM. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. I am now joined by Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management, one of the largest and fastest growing crypto asset managers, currently over $1.5 billion in assets. That includes the world's largest crypto index fund, the Bitwise 10 Crypto Index Fund, ticker BITW. They also recently launched the Bitwise Polygon Fund, and they offer one of the so-called blockchain ETFs, the Bitwise Crypto Industry Innovators ETF ticker BITQ. Matt is now on the line with me from San Francisco. Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Nate. Excited to be here. I've got to tell you, I cannot wait to hear what you've been thinking over the past week as you've watched all of this unfold with the uh, ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF debuting last Tuesday. Valkyrie launched the Bitcoin futures ETF last Friday. Van Eck here any day. What have been your first impressions here? Let, let's start there. Well, it's amazing, Nate. I mean, look at it. Before the launch of these products, there was a big debate on whether we needed a Bitcoin ETF. There were lots of people who said there are plenty of ways to buy Bitcoin. You can buy it in a Coinbase account. You can buy it through PayPal. Well, guess what? We got our first Bitcoin ETF, even if it's an imperfect futures ETF, and it became the fastest growing ETF of all time. It hit $1.1 billion in two days. What that tells me is something very important which is there is a large class of institutional and professional money that's been sitting on the sidelines waiting to get into the crypto industry, and it needed an ETF to do it. It makes me very bullish about the future as we get more ETFs that are inevitably going to come down the SEC pipeline. So I've been excited. I wish it were a bitwise fun, but cheers for uh, Michael Safer and ProShares for getting out first, and uh, they've done a great job with that product. To, to your point, I'm definitely not trying to take some sort of victory lap here. I don't have a crystal ball. But I'll be honest, I am not surprised in the least by the investor demand we've seen for these ETFs so far. Even though I absolutely believe futures-based Bitcoin ETFs are suboptimal products, and we can certainly talk about that. I think we want to put that out there. But I just knew the demand would be there based on conversations that I had with investors and advisors over the past few years. It was just obvious to me that they were yearning for this exposure. But why do you think everyone seems so surprised by the demand? I know you're not, but it seems like in general people were caught off guard by this. I don't think people understand how busy financial advisors are. I think they look at financial advisors and other professional investors for whom this is the way to get into crypto. And they say, oh, but you could get it cheaper. You could not pay a management fee. You could set up your own hard wallet and interact directly through Coinbase Pro and do your own trading and diligence your own custodian. And what they don't realize is that these folks are busy. For many professional investors, crypto is going to be a 1% to 5% allocation in their portfolio. They can't spend two weeks setting up how to get into that position or spend you know, eight hours rebalancing portfolios every quarter simply because it's a slightly better way to get in. So I understand the view that these products are not sort of as optimal for a single retail self-directed investor making one investment who has all the time in the world. 
But ease of use is a killer app. And even if you don't get 100% of Bitcoin price appreciation or fall over a period of time, it's better to get 90% than to sit on the sidelines. So people always overlook ease of use. Ease of use is a killer app, and these ETFs have ease of use. You mentioned that Bitwise does have a, uh, a couple of filings, or I mentioned that. There's a futures-based filing and a physical-based filing. We can talk about that in a little bit. But um, I- I'm curious how you think the SEC handled these initial products coming to market. And I'll give you a free pass if you want to sidestep this question. You may need like five free passes for me today. But do you have any thoughts on ProShares being given this first mover advantage? I've said, I thought from my perspective, the SEC should have approved all these futures-based ETFs at once. So set the, the appropriate guidelines, give everybody an opportunity to come to market. That way they're not playing kingmaker. Let the free markets figure out you know, who, who, who the winner is. It, it, are there any comments you would offer on that, just how this has all gone down? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, I would have preferred that as someone who wants to compete in this space and uh, and someone who wasn't as quick as ProShares to get their filing in. At the same time, kudos for ProShares for doing it. I do think maybe it would have been fairer to have a, a mass launch of multiple competitors. You also wouldn't have had the same position limit considerations that ProShares has run into. The flip side of that, though, Nate, and, and this is something that I don't think the crypto industry has been willing to tell itself is that this was an act of regulatory courage, right? We sat on the sidelines with proposals for Bitcoin ETFs for eight and a half years, and Gensler pushed forward a Bitcoin futures ETF. Is it the ETF we wanted? No, we want a physical ETF. That would be better for investors. Is it perfect that it was a sort of rolling start based on who filed first instead of a fairer landscape? Probably not from my perspective, but the flip side of that is we finally got a Bitcoin ETF after eight and a half years, and we should applaud that even as we sort of write down the imperfections around the launch. Okay, you mentioned regulatory courage. Now we're going to have to head down that path and and how much regulatory courage the SEC has. So look, um, as we discussed, I think most people are aware of the shortcomings of futures-based ETFs, or at least they are a lot more aware than they were a few weeks ago. Now, if, if you would like to discuss some of the issues with Contango and negative roll costs and all that, you are absolutely more than welcome to. But I am curious as to whether you think these shortcomings might impact the SEC's decision-making on a physical Bitcoin ETF. Do you think that they care that these products are suboptimal? And if so, d- does that help the prospects of a physical Bitcoin ETF? Oh, that's an interesting question. The, the, the short answer to that is I don't know. Uh, the SEC is very focused on the investor protections offered by the 1940 Act. And, of course, they're not a merit-based regulator, right? We had VIX futures ETFs that were effectively perpetually going towards zero, uh, but they fit within the regulatory framework. So I don't know if the issues of roll costs and contango are going to pressure regulators to approve a physical Bitcoin ETF. But here's a funny thing, Nate. The launch of these ETFs actually makes the case, the statistical academic regulatory case for physical Bitcoin ETFs stronger. The irony of people like Bitwise who have been pushing for a physical Bitcoin ETF is that we have been leaning on the importance of the CME Bitcoin futures market as a regulated market of significant size. That is what you need in order to launch a spot commodity ETF, which is what a Bitcoin ETF would be. And the fact that these ETFs have driven more volume and interest into the futures market actually reflexively makes the argument for a physical Bitcoin ETF stronger. So while I don't know if the SEC feels emotional pressure because these are imperfect products, there have been imperfect products on the market for a long time. We've had GBTC trading at premiums and discounts with $40 billion in it. And that hasn't pushed the SEC over the edge. But I do think that to the extent that this drives more institutional activity into the Bitcoin market and strengthens the CME Bitcoin futures market as an important market that can be surveilled, that actually helps push a physical Bitcoin ETF forward. And I do think we will get a physical Bitcoin ETF probably faster than many people expect. Okay, so now you're giving me a hint of optimism after I have grown uh, rather bearish on the prospects for a physical ETF. So, so because of that, let me play some comments from SEC Chair Gary Gensler. These are from yesterday. He was on Yahoo Finance. 
And uh, this was with Brian Chung, and, and Brian essentially asked him the same question that I just asked you. Take a listen to this. So on that point, I mean, just to kind of drill down, the, the Bitcoin spot ETF, you've expressed concern about what the underlying risk might be with Bitcoin, right? Whether that's anti-money laundering or other types of issues. Do you feel like anything that you've seen, though, with the Bitcoin futures products last week are resolved? Are any of those concerns kind of alleviated given what we've seen the, the response to those products be? And are you becoming more friendly towards the idea of a spot ETF because of what you saw last week? Or are you still trying to kind of form what your thoughts are on the underlying product first before you try to move forward on any sort of other product there? Um, Brian, you can imagine I'm not going to speak to any individual filings that might be in front of us or prejudge anything. But I think that the concern for the investing public is the crypto asset space, two plus two and a half trillion dollars. Most of it has not come within an investor protection uh, remit. And thus, investors aren't uh, uh, protected the way they are, whether they go into the stock or bond markets that we've overseen for so long. Without that, I think that it really is, as I've said to others, a bit of the Wild West. Uh, and, and these markets, uh, largely around the globe, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, <clears throat> don't have the similar protections against fraud, and manipulation and front running and other abuses. Okay, Matt. So as I listen to those comments, it's just very difficult for me to see how the SEC is ever going to get comfortable with a spot product until the underlying market is somehow regulated. Um, how do we get there? Like, what's the next step to get Gary Gensler and the SEC comfortable? Well, it's certainly true that Gensler and the SEC wants to regulate the underlying markets. And I don't know that that would be a bad thing, mate. I think we might all do better in the crypto market with a, a bit more clear clarity on the regulatory front. But there is an element to which uh, Gensler's comments uh, maybe don't jive with the full reality. Because, of course, the Bitcoin futures uh, on the CME settle to the spot price of Bitcoin. So if the SEC is concerned about fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot Bitcoin market, that bubbles straight up into the price in the CME Bitcoin futures market. The ray of hope that I would give you, Nate, and give the listeners is that things evolve very quickly in the Bitcoin market. We're only a week into the era of having Bitcoin futures ETF. That's a week into the era of the idea of Bitcoin being normalized. And we're already seeing major breakthroughs. We saw Morningstar you know, a bastion of sort of retail and financial advisor uh, uh, ideation come forward and say that Bitcoin could have a role in diversified portfolios. That's one week into this Bitcoin ETF era. I think as Bitcoin becomes more and more normalized over the course of the next quarter, two quarters, three quarters, year, uh, I think the case for a Bitcoin ETF is a spot Bitcoin ETF is going to uh, become somewhat closer to inevitable. I know the SEC wants to regulate those underlying markets, but at the end of the day, the spot price is what the CME Bitcoin futures market settles to. And I think, I think it's just going to be uh, normalized rapidly over time. Again, Bitwise does have a futures-based Bitcoin ETF filing and a spot Bitcoin ETF filing with the SEC. And I know you can't say much about those, but can you offer any sort of insight into your thinking? Like, why file for both? And I'll just add to that that it's my belief that if and when the SEC approves a spot ETF, I think investors are going to exit the futures-based ETFs in mass. I don't think they're going to want those products anymore. So do, do you agree with that? And if so, does that give you any pause in launching a futures-based ETF? Is it sort of a hedge if the SEC never gets comfortable with a spot product? What, what, what can you tell us about that? I, I agree with you that investors will leave futures-based ETFs in general for physical ETFs. That's what you see in every similar market, right? There's not a lot of money in gold futures ETFs. It's all in spot gold. That's what investors want. I've said it before. A spot Bitcoin ETF is the platonic ideal of Bitcoin exposure. So ultimately, that is where we're going. But we don't know how long that road will be. And one thing Bitwise wants to do is meet investors where they are. If what we can bring to market is a futures-based Bitcoin ETF, that's what we will bring to market. And we will work with investors to help them understand the pros, the cons, the risks. We'll do massive education on Contango. 
a lot of investors buying a crypto product want to buy a relationship with a company with expertise in that space. So we want to play in that market. Look, you know, the history of crypto is a history of sort of imperfect product structures helping people gain exposure to a rapidly emerging asset class. No one thinks that OTC-traded crypto trusts are a perfect product, but plenty of investors have benefited from those products existing. As an asset manager, you bring what products you can, and then you educate so people know the risks and the benefits of those products. That's what we're doing in the future space space. But yeah, you're right. Ultimately, we want to spot Bitcoin ETF. We've been working on that for three years. We just filed for one again. We submitted 150 pages of research. We continue to devote, you know, multiple full-time employees to pushing that forward. And I hope that we get there. What about just the competitive dynamics here in the futures based space? I'm fascinated by this. I actually talked about this with both Tom Lydon and Andrew Channon earlier. But, you know, look, you're, you're a longtime savvy veteran of the ETF space. I would say nobody knows more about how ridiculously competitive the space is than you do. And I feel like with Bitcoin ETFs in particular, that's been ratcheted up a, a whole nother level, which is saying something. But assuming that Bitwise does get a futures based uh, ETF to market, how do you compete here, especially given the head start that's been offered to other issuers? Yeah, certainly first mover is a big advantage in the crypto market. The way we compete, Nate, is that we're crypto experts, right? We have a five-person research team. We have a 20-person wholesaling team. Uh, we've been in this market for almost four years, providing products with billions of dollars in assets uh, tied to them. So people will choose our ETF because they want a relationship with us. They want someone to call when Gensler makes his latest statement to understand how it impacts the crypto market. They want someone to call if Elon Musk tweets something. They want someone to call when the taproot upgrade goes through on Bitcoin, and they need to contextualize what that means for the market. Will it allow Bitcoin to compete with Ethereum? The reality for financial advisors is that once you allocate to crypto and client accounts, you're going to get a lot of questions from those clients. And so Bitwise's point of competitive differentiation is that those advisors can have a relationship with us to answer those questions. It doesn't mean we're going to surpass pro shares on assets, but we think for many, many advisors specifically, that will be a valuable service, and we look forward to providing it. A few minutes left here. I solicited a few questions from Twitter, and, and actually through the, the course of our conversation here, you've done a good job, I think, of answering two of them. So I'm going to go to the third. The, the, the first two were, uh, one was from Morningstar's Ben Johnson, good friend of the show. I know a friend of yours. He was asking, will we ever see an ETF that invests directly in Bitcoin? If so, it, I thought this was funny. Could you tell us exactly when and save us all from the swirl of speculation until that day comes? So I, I know how you already talked about that. Another question, which I thought this was great, came from Jess uh, Bost. And I like this one. She said, tell me why a Bitcoin futures ETF is good. I've heard every reason why it isn't, yet the first one to launch hit records never previously seen. So someone somewhere believes in it. I want to know who and why. I feel like I'm missing something and it's unsettling. I thought you did a great job of explaining why we saw the demand at the top of our, our conversation. So this third question, though, is really interesting to me. Um, this comes from Duan Segundo, and he, he asked, why do we think that the Ethereum futures-based ETF applications were withdrawn two days after they were filed? And what would all add to that, Matt, is that, you, you know, look, Ether futures trade on CME. So if the SEC is comfortable with Bitcoin futures on CME and we can take the Ether futures, wrap them in a 40X vehicle, which obviously Genzer likes, what is the difference? Any insight into that? <laughs> yeah, that is a very logical argument and certainly one that a lot of people in the crypto industry have been trying to wrap their head around. I don't have any secret insight into the SEC's thinking. I think from a real politic perspective, they may be thinking crawl, walk, run, right? This, the Bitcoin futures market is the largest market, the most established market. It's the first market you would start. If that thesis is right, then the, uh, the, the walk part will mean we'll eventually see a Ether-based ETF or Ether futures-based ETF. The, the sort of regulatory argument that I would imagine they're anchored on is that the Ether futures market is newer and the liquidity is less established and therefore less certain going on into the future, right? The longer track record of liquidity and robust, you know, multi-participant markets and significant open interest you have, 
the more confidence you have that that will be true in the future. So I could imagine regulators uh, wanting to push pause on the consistency of open interest and volume in the Ethereum futures market. Again, that points to the same thing, Nate, which is eventually we will get there, right? Eventually those, those limited history arguments go away. And I do think we will see Ethereum futures ETF. And I think, you know, based on my conversations with institutions and professional investors and advisors, that there may be uh, almost as much interest in an Ethereum futures ETF as there is in a Bitcoin ETF. Ethereum is the hot dot among institutional investors right now looking at the crypto market. And so I bet that people are underestimating, you know, how potentially successful uh, such a product could be. How about an ETF owning both Bitcoin and Ether futures? How about that? Uh, <laughs> Matt? You're, you're peering into our product development playbook, Nate. <laughs> of, of course, that's a better solution. You know me. I'm an index guy. <laughs> uh, let's, let's hold both. That's exactly right. Hey, one minute left for a question that could take an hour-long response, but just briefly broadening out the lens and talking Bitcoin higher level. Any quick thoughts on how the approval of futures-based Bitcoin ETFs impact the price of Bitcoin, because it would seem to be a tailwind, right? That you have more investors that can now access exposure. Theoretically, that's more demand, which, you know, that would then be good for price. Do you agree with that logic and anything else you would add? I certainly agree with that long term. Short term, who knows, right, Nate? There could be a a sell the news element going on. There's so much anticipation for this launch. Uh, It's difficult to forecast over the short term. Over the long term, it has to be positive for the market. Again, I go back to what we started this interview with. What the Bitcoin futures ETF launch showed is there is a large mass of professional money that wanted to get into the crypto market but didn't feel comfortable until there's an ETF. Now we have one ETF. We're going to have more. We're going to have Ethereum. We're going to have an index. That money is going to move in, and that creates a relentless bid that should be a long-term tailwind for this market, I think, for multiple years to come. Matt, always enjoy the time. Keep up the good fight on the physical Bitcoin ETF. Uh, Love your effort. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was great. That was Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Laura Sagafredo, Global Head of Sustainable Research, ETF and Index Investments at BlackRock, and Sarah Greenberg, Executive Director, ESG Client Coverage at MSCI. We are going to discuss climate considerations in investor portfolios. And then also, I'll be joined by Round Hill's Will Hershey, who we're going to have a fun conversation around the intersection of social media and ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.